morning again. As I said before, I'm uh, Pastor Mark. I'm the discipleship pastor here at New Life. And uh, we have lots of other pastors here at New Life. And the great news is, is that they're all in the country right now. And they're all back safe. So, yeah, praise God for that. We're very thankful. Um, our Malawi missions team uh, got back earlier this week. Pastor Chris returned from Cambodia and the building dedication earlier this week. So for those of you who've been praying for our pastors and our staff and the folks from New Life who are away doing missions work, thank you so much because they had an incredible time. I haven't heard about Pastor Chris's trip yet. I'm excited to, but I've heard from several people about the Malawi trip. And I know that in the next uh, several weeks, we're hoping to share some of what happened in Malawi with you because God did some really incredible things. If you're here for the very first time, we're so excited that you're here to join us. New Life was created for you. We planned on you being here. So thank you for coming out. Thank you for giving us a slot on your Sunday morning. Come out and join us and worship with us. And today, we're in a series called Daniel. Now, this series is 12 weeks long, which is longer than most of the series we do at New Life. And usually in the summer, we look at a New Testament book. But Daniel is part of the Old Testament, and we're looking at each chapter one week at a time. So this is week five, so we're on chapter five of Daniel today out of 12 weeks we'll be going through. Now, I didn't know what kind of feel about going through Daniel. I was excited about it, but what I found is Daniel has been really challenging for me, really encouraging for me, and I've really enjoyed the beginning of this series, and I hope it's been the same for you. I hope it's been challenging and encouraging. I hope you've been learning a lot. Uh, as what we look at Daniel, it's a historical book, so we learn a little bit of history, and today is going to be no different. We're going to be learning a little bit of history. So last week, Pastor Chris talked about Daniel chapter 4. In fact, I want to encourage you, if you didn't watch or you were unable to be here, check it out at newlifexn.org. And it's not just because we want you to go to our website or we want you to watch all the sermons, but it's because the sermons in this series build off of one another. So for example, we're going to be referencing a lot of the things that happen in Daniel 4 today when we look at Daniel 5. And if you weren't here for Daniel 4, you might not have any clue well, what the heck happened at all in Daniel 4. And this is also going to be building off of an almost the second part of my message a couple of weeks ago from Daniel chapter 2, as we're going to be looking at Daniel's life and some of the things that he does, and uh, that's very similar and mirrors a lot of the things that happen in Daniel chapter 2. So when we pick up in Daniel chapter 4, you'll notice, some, or Daniel chapter 5, you'll notice that something has changed. We're introduced to a new king. In fact, the NLT says some years had passed, and there was a new king. His name is Belshazzar, not to be confused with Daniel's Babylonian name, Belteshazzar. So we have Belshazzar, the new king of Babylon. So it raises the question, what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Because if you were here last week, you know that we left off with a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar seemed to have a lot of dreams for some reason, and he was always getting upset about them. Um, but this, this dream that we talked about in Daniel chapter 4 is the last time we hear from him. It's like the end of Daniel chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar's return to all his former glory. He's the ruler of Babylon. Babylon is a superpower. And then some years pass, and we're not really sure how many, and suddenly we're in Daniel chapter 5. So let's talk about some of the things that have happened from historical records before, between the end of Daniel 4 and the beginning of Daniel 5. So King Nebuchadnezzar, historically speaking, died in the year 562 BC, 562 BC. Now, the time works differently in BC, and I'm not, like, it's in reverse, which is ridiculous. I'm not going to ask you to do the math in your head. Don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll hook you up with stuff. Then there's four rulers in, in Babylon. In fact, there's a string of overthrows and assassinations of Babylonian rulers. And then finally, after four rulers, the current king of this story, Belshazzar, comes 
into power. Now that's about in the year of 554. Now he could be a king very similar to Nebuchadnezzar, or he could be kind of more of a governor. It's not entirely clear exactly what his role is, but either way, currently he's some type of an important ruler inside of Babylon. So Belshazzar becomes um, becomes the king of Babylon, and then our story picks up in Daniel chapter 5 in about the year 539. Now, that's give or take. It could be off, but about the year 539 B.C. So all in all, we think about 23 years have passed. So when you get done reading chapter 4 and you get to the very first word of chapter 5, 23 years have passed. But not just 23 years have passed. There's been a lot of other stuff that happens. Because in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar rules Babylon, and Babylon is like the most powerful empire in the world. But when we pick up in Daniel chapter 5, there's going to be a new player on the scene that doesn't get talked about because we just jumped 23 years. But in those 23 years, the nation of Babylon weakens. The overthrows and the assassinations make it unstable. They lose kind of their grip on much of their empire, and they begin to go into conflict which we, with a country, a nation. Uh, we call them the Persians and the Medes, but what will eventually be the empire of Persia. And so it's important for us to know a couple of things. One, Belshazzar's on the throne after a string of assassinations and overthrows. Two, the nation of Babylon is kind of on a knife's edge. Three, they have not had a strong leader in the past 20 years plus. And four, is that they are currently at war or in conflict with the future empire of Persia. So those are really important things for us to understand. It's going to give us a lot of context for Belshazzar's actions in Daniel chapter 5. Now, I want to pick up in verse 1, but before I do that, I'd like to point out today's take-home point. And the take-home point is the one point I'm going to seek to make so that we can take it home and live it out in the week ahead. And it's this. Because God is relentless for his glory, we must be too. Because God is relentless for his glory, we must be too. And we're really going to focus in at the end of the sermon today, at the end of today's message, on that word relentless and what that means when applied to our lives specifically surrounding God's glory. But before we do that, let's jump in and we're going to read most, we're going to take some breaks and I'm, I'm going to make some comments, but we're going to read most of Daniel chapter 5 together says this in chapter 5, verse 1. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. While they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone. So from historical records, we know kind of what's going on to set the stage for this grand party that King Belshazzar is throwing. Just about 50 miles away from the capital city of Babylon, right about this time, the city of Opus, which was a Babylonian conquered city, is taken by the Persians which puts the Persians literally at the doorstep of the Babylonian Empire. They're 50 miles, somewhere, given, somewhere around there, away from attacking, besieging, and maybe conquering Babylon. So Belshazzar and his officials, his wives and his concubines, really know that the nation is kind of right on the edge of complete and total collapse. This incredibly powerful empire, who has ruled most of the known world for quite a long time, has made quite a name for themselves for their debauchery and their revelry and also their brutality, 
is right kind of on the edge of maybe crumbling and falling apart and becoming part of a new empire and a new nation. So this could be a feast that's kind of like the final hurrah. Like we're throwing a big celebration and we're kind of like, woohoo, like we just want to have one big party before we go to war. So let's all get drunk and drink from these goblets and praise our gods made of wood and stone and bronze and gold and things. It could be that. But what it more likely is, is it's actually a desperate king's, a desperate man's attempt to appease his god. See, Belshazzar served a god named Marduk. And Marduk, although they collected, when, when Babylon would conquer a nation, they would take their gods and make them theirs. But they would kind of subject them to their god's rule. And their god was Marduk. And so Belshazzar served, amongst other gods, the one god above all others, this fake, lifeless god, was Marduk. And so what he was doing was he was throwing a party and he was trying to appease Marduk in order to have a blessing bestowed on him and the Babylonians for the impending conflict and final fight that they were about to have with Persia. So this could be a party, but more likely it's him trying to appease his god Marduk. Now, in that time when a king would take over and conquer an enemy nation, one of the things they would oftentimes do is they might actually take the king and the king of the nation they conquered and embarrass him. Um, they might belittle him. They might execute him publicly. But then oftentimes they would take his possessions. They would take his, his stuff. They would take his wives. They would take his family. And if he didn't kill them, he would kind of take them as his own and, and then kind of parade them around as a way to say, I beat this guy and now I have his stuff, right? And it was kind of like a point of pride. Well, in a very similar way, we're seeing something here with the gods, right? Because he's saying Marduk is the most powerful god, and Marduk has gone into all of these enemy nations, and he has killed or conquered all of these other gods. And he has taken, pillaged their sacred objects. Now, these goblets that we talk about in the story were sacred objects that were dedicated to the temple in Jerusalem. They were very important. They weren't just normal cups. They were sacred objects that God had ordained ahead of time to be used in specific rituals and specific sacrifices inside the Israelite culture. So these goblets weren't just a normal cup. These were vitally important to the religious practices of the Jews and the Israelites at the time. And so when he was taking these goblets out and parading them in front of Marduk, and he's parading him in front of the idols, and he's bowing down and worshiping them, he's basically saying, Marduk, you killed the Israelite god. Look at all these gods that you've conquered. You can conquer the Persian god in the same way. Let me get your blessing by parading in front of you the trophies that you have taken from all of these other dead gods. Now, when we understand that, we realize why this blasphemy probably won't go unanswered. Before, it's like, Belshazzar throws a party, and he drinks from some weird golden cups. If you had a golden cup, you'd probably drink from it too, because that's super cool to own a golden cup, right? Like, I don't know about you, but if I owned a golden cup, I would also probably drink from it. But when we understand the context that these cups are sacred, and what Belshazzar is actually trying to do is profane other gods, being the god, in order to honor and uplift and gain the blessing of his god, Marduk, we understand a little bit more of why this situation is so preposterous and outrageous, and it, indeed it doesn't go unanswered. Answered, and we see that in chapter 5, starting in verse 5. Suddenly they, Belshazzar and his entourage, saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster of the king's palace near the lampstand. Um, I don't know why it's near a lampstand. I guess God likes to be in 
good lighting when he draws. Um, the king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him, which makes sense because there's a dismembered ghostly hand writing on the wall. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. So suddenly... They're partying, and this dismembered hand shows up, and he starts writing on the wall in the plaster next to the lamp. This kind of reminds me of the Ten Commandments. When God wrote and cut out the stone tablets on the mountain for Moses, and, and we can think about it, like, wow, it's kind of like that, but it's a lot more than that, because it's not just God displaying his power, it's also making a direct connection to the context that they're in. See, at the time, whenever someone would conquer another nation and they would take it over and they would kill the warriors, right, after a battle, they would go along and they would chop off the right hands of all of the corpses of the men that they killed. It was kind of a way, it was like a trophy, like you could be able to show how many guys that you killed or how many guys that you beat in battle. It was also a way to disgrace them because you were cutting off their right hand and the right hand represented someone's strength. If you remove someone's right hand, you are by extension taking away their strength as well. In fact, the Egyptians even believed, because you took your body with you into the afterlife, that if you took off someone's right hand after you had defeated them in battle, that you wouldn't just be depriving them of strength in, in the current world, but in the afterlife they would go without their right hand, and you'd be depriving them of strength in the afterlife as well. So the right hand had a great amount of significance. So what we have here is not just God's hand writing on some plaster, but what we have here is the dismembered hand of a God that Marduk supposedly defeated, right? We have the dismembered hand of a God that Marduk supposedly defeated. But this hand isn't lifeless or powerless. In fact, quite the opposite. This hand has quite a bit of power, and it is not lifeless at all. It's God making a direct connection to the people of that time to say, your God, Marduk, did not defeat me. I'm not powerless. I'm not dead. You have no reign over top of me in this environment. But of course, Belshazzar doesn't know what the hand represents. He, he, he's, he's profaning a whole bunch of gods from different nations that Marduk supposedly defeated. So he's not really sure, and he's terrified. So he calls in all of the enchanters and the astrologers and, and the fortune tellers and the, the, the people who look at the stars, all of these people, right, who we've seen before. It seems like every chapter of Daniel, these blokes show up and they have no clue what they're doing, right? I don't know how any of them are still alive. Like, if, if you would lose your job, if every time someone called on you and said, could you tell me what, you know, do your job, and you were just completely inept and incapable of doing your job— you would lose your job, but somehow these dudes still have their job. So these guys are supposed to be able to predict omens. They'll be able to predict movements in the heavenly bodies. They'll be able to look at the stars and tell the king what's going on. They were able to predict and tell him what dreams meant. So that's kind of what their purpose is. So anytime something weird, spiritual, creepy happens, the king would call in these guys. And so let's pick up and see in verse 8, after he calls for help, 
says, but when all the king's wise men had come in, none of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. Surprise, shocker, right? They couldn't do it. Um, so the king grew even more alarmed, and his face turned pale. His nobles, too, were shaken, which is better than Nebuchadnezzar, because Nebuchadnezzar would have had them chopped to pieces, and then would have had their houses turned into rubble. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall. She said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom that has within him the spirit of the holy gods. King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, during King Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, was except, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Let's pause for a second. So Daniel, in Daniel chapter 4, was second to King Nebuchadnezzar. There was nobody above him other than the king himself. He ruled Babylon for the most part. He made most of the major decisions for Babylon. But here, in chapter 5, King Belshazzar doesn't even know who he is. He's not even familiar with Daniel. So we have to assume that at some point... And, and like, like, he was the head of the astrologers and the enchanters and the fortune tellers, these creepy guys who couldn't do their job. He was their boss. But when Belshazzar calls them in, Daniel's not even there. So something happened in the last 20 years, the last four kings and the overthrows and everything. Daniel evidently survived all of that, which is kind of surprising. But what didn't happen is he, he didn't retain his position. So he is serving in some other capacity inside of Babylon. He's not in the same position. The King Belshazzar doesn't even really know that he's there. The next thing is we have this person who enters the picture called the Queen Mother. Now, if you are looking at the NIV translation, it's easy to think that the Queen Mother might be Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Because, and here's the reason why, the NLT describes Belshazzar as Nebuchadnezzar's predecessor. But if you look in the NIV and some other translations, it will say his son, or Nebuchadnezzar is his father. And so you get this image that Nebuchadnezzar reigned, and then sometime later his son became the, the king of Babylon. But that's probably not true. In fact, it's very unlikely that Belshazzar is Nebuchadnezzar's son. Uh, the, the, the word that they use there in the Hebrew could mean a distant relative. So it could be that he's kind of like a grandson or a great-grandson, or it could just mean that he is serving in the same capacity in the same role that Nebuchadnezzar was, and therefore, because he's sitting on the throne, he's Nebuchadnezzar's metaphorical son. Son in power, son in authority, but not biological. So that being said, it makes it very, very unlikely that this woman who we see come into the picture is probably related to Belshazzar, maybe Belshazzar's mother, maybe Belshazzar's grandmother, because she has memories of Nebuchadnezzar. She was evidently royalty in some regard, because she also has a connection and remembers Daniel, who was the head of the astrologers and the enchanters and the fortune tellers, but she's probably not Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Now, it's not vitally important, but it's always good to kind of get an idea for the history and the context of what's going on. So when something terrible happens and nobody knows what's going on and no one can predict it and the fortune tellers fail, what do they do? They call our friend Daniel. So here's Daniel entering the scene. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king asked him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles brought from Judah by my predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar? I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods within you, and that you are filled with insight, understanding, and wisdom. My wise men and enchanters have tried to read the words on the wall and tell me their meaning, but they can't do it. I'm told that you can give interpretations and solve difficult problems. If you can read these words and tell me their meaning, you will be clothed in purple robes of royal honor, and you will have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
Daniel answered the king, keep your gifts or give them to someone else. But I will tell you what the writing means. Just a few weeks ago, we saw Daniel do this exact same thing. See, when Daniel has the opportunity or is given the opportunity to gain glory, riches, and honor, Daniel is only interested in giving glory to God. Daniel is a glory giver, not a glory seeker. We saw this build up from Daniel chapter 2. He's seen God do miraculous things. And when given the opportunity to gain all the riches and the wealth and the power of Babylon, he turns it down, and he's, but he wants to glorify God in what he's doing. So he did the exact same thing, very similar with Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter 2. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. We see here, still 20-some years later, after being one of the most powerful men in Babylon, Daniel remains a glory giver, not just a glory seeker. Let's continue reading. Your majesty, the most high God, gave sovereignty and majesty, glory and honor to your predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar. He made him so great that all the people of all races and nations and languages trembled before him in fear. He killed those he wanted to kill and spared those he wanted to spare. He honored those he wanted to honor and disgraced those he wanted to disgrace. But when his heart and mind were puffed up with arrogance, he was brought down from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven from human society. He was given the mind of a wild animal and lived among the wild donkeys. He ate grass like a cow And he was drenched with the dew of heaven until he learned that the Most High God rules over the kingdoms of the world and appoints anyone he desires to rule over them. So let's just, real quick here, this is Daniel chapter 4. So if you missed Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar sent into the wilderness, eats grass like a cow, drenched with the dew of heaven, all of that stuff is is chapter 4. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from his temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see nor hear nor anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your very destiny. So God has sent his hand to write this message. So let's take a break. Belshazzar called in Daniel so he could read the writing on the wall. He did not call in Daniel for a lecture. He did not call Daniel for a sermon. He did not call in Daniel to get blasted by him the way that Daniel does. He's like, can you tell me what it says over there on the wall? And Daniel's like, how dare you take the cups? <laughs> he's, like, he's like yelling at him. He's like in his face about it. And this, is, this guy can just kill Daniel. This dude doesn't even know who Daniel is. He has no idea who Daniel is. The king has no reference for him. The queen mother knew who he was. This guy could have Daniel killed on the spot, and yet Daniel just lays into him. He doesn't predict what's on the wall. He's like, I don't even want your robe. I don't want your gifts. I don't want your gold chain. I don't want your position. And also, what's wrong with you? You're acting like a child, Belshazzar. Right? That's like a really, that's crazy to me, kind of the way that he does that. Because I think I would be scared in that moment. I'm like, you want me to, you want me to read the writing on the wall? Just read the writing on the wall. Okay, just read it. I think I would just want to read the writing on the wall, not lecture the king. But he lectures the king. And I think it's because Daniel knows something, and we've seen this in before in Daniel's life. He knows that King Belshazzar can do nothing to him that God has not already decided would happen. He knows that King Belshazzar can do nothing to him that God hasn't already decided was going to happen. Belshazzar's not the one in control here. Once again, it seems like Belshazzar's in control, but the one who's actually in control is God. And I think one of the really profound things here, Pastor Chris says this a lot, and it's always really helped me to understand relationships, and it's this. Everything in life comes down to trust and control. Everything in life comes down to control and trust, it says up there. Everything in life comes down to control and trust. See, if you trust someone or something or an, or an activity, something, whatever it is that you trust, you have no need to control it because you trust it. 
But when you don't trust a person, a situation, whatever it is that you don't trust, you really want to control it. Why? Because you don't feel like you can trust it. Now, this has profound implications, this truth for our life. And you can think about the people in your life that you trust and how you don't control them. And then think about the people in your life that they're telling you you're trying to control them. And it's because you don't trust them, right? And this can happen in situations. But the place it's true more than any other place is our relationship with God. We oftentimes find ourselves in places where we're trying to control God because we don't really trust him. We believe him. But we don't really believe that his plan is best. The truth is we're normally more concerned with our own plans than we are with trusting God's plan. We're normally more concerned with our own plans than we are with trusting God's plan. Ultimately, from that, we can easily be consumed by seeking our own glory. And Belshazzar did exactly that. Why? Because Belshazzar forgot what had happened in Daniel chapter 4. See, evidently, Belshazzar had been around long enough to know what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. He knew for seven periods of time, Nebuchadnezzar was driven from society. He was given the mind of a wild beast. He lived with the donkeys. He ate grass like a cow. He was drenched in the dew of heaven. It seemed like his fingernails grew as long as talons and his hair grew out. And then after seven periods of time, God reappointed him. The most powerful man in the world was humbled. And Belshazzar knew that story but he forgot it. And here's the truth. Time has a funny effect on us when it comes to remembering what God has done in our lives. Time has a funny effect on us when it comes to remembering what God has done in our lives. For the past decade or so, I've been taking teenagers out to camps, retreats, events, different things where they get an opportunity to get away and experience God. And although youth group has always been an awesome thing here at New Life, it's those retreats and those camps that really change people's lives in a significant way. They get to encounter the Holy Spirit in a powerful way. And that was the same thing for me growing up as a kid. And I've been encouraging them at the end of all those, almost every time, to remember. To remember. To not forget what God did this weekend. To not forget what God did this week. This week, starting tonight, our high schoolers and middle schoolers, there'll be 50-some people here spending the night on the cement floor doing a local missions trip here. And we'll be encouraging them to remember the encounters they have with the Holy Spirit. Because I know someday they'll be sitting in a college classroom or they'll be at a difficult place in life or they'll be in a lot of significant pain and it will be easy to explain away what the Holy Spirit has done. It'll be easy to explain away the experiences they had with God. It'll be easy to explain away and forget what God has done. The thing is, when we forget what God has done in our past, it's difficult to follow him in our future. When we forget what God has done in the past, it is difficult to follow him in the future. King Belshazzar had forgotten what God had done in the past. And the scary part is, is I can kind of relate to Belshazzar. I know what it feels like to go to everything in my life but God. I know what it feels like to go to God last. I know what it feels like to forget what God has done in my life in the past. I know what it feels like to forget him or to be consumed with seeking my own glory and forget that I'm a glory giver, not just a glory seeker. The problem is, and this is what we began learning right at the beginning, is that God is relentless for his glory. It's not a joke to him. And at the end of Daniel 5, we're going to see exactly what happens when we forget about glorifying God and only seek our own glory. 
This is the message. This is Daniel speaking. This is the message that is written. Mani, mani, takil, and parsin. This is what the words mean. Manin means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought them to an end. Takil means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parsin means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Historically, we believe that shortly after this assassination, when this Mede, Darius, takes over the kingdom of Babylon, the Persians will march up and they'll take the Babylonian capital without a conflict, no fight. Babylon will simply surrender. God is relentless about his glory. A few weeks ago, we talked about giving credit to God for the things that he's done in our lives. And we saw what happened when Daniel, when faced with opposition, glorified God and took no credit for himself. He and the lives of his friends were saved. He was honored and given great riches. A lot of things changed for him. Today, we see the very opposite. Belshazzar dishonors God, seeks his own glory. And as a result, not only is he killed, not only does he lose his life, but the Babylonian empire crumbles and falls to the Persians and the Medes. Dishonoring God and seeking our own glory leads to death. Dishonoring God and seeking our own glory leads to death. Let me tell you, it leads to spiritual death first. And not always physical death, but always spiritual death first. Pride is the very sin that was with us in the Garden of Eden that got us kicked out of there to begin with. Pride is the thing that makes us into glory seekers rather than glory givers. Pride is the thing that usually stands between us and Jesus. Pride has been passed down from generation to generation to generation, constantly and continually plaguing human society and keeping us far from God. God, however, did not create us to be prideful glory seekers. He created us to be humble glory givers. In Daniel, we see that God is willing to topple kingdoms, to change the political landscape of an entire part of the world when he seeks his own glory. See, if God is willing to exile Israel and topple Babylon so that he will be glorified, then he is certainly willing to turn our lives upside down. If God is willing to exile Israel to Babylon, then topple Babylon so that he will be glorified, then he is certainly willing to turn our lives upside down. He is relentless for his glory, and therefore we need to be relentless in pursuing it too. Which brings us to our commitment today. It's this. I will put God first by relentlessly pursuing his glory where I work, live, live, work, and hang out. I want to really get practical here because this can seem kind of high and flighty. Right? It's like, okay, this is great. So the next time I'm called into a king's throne room and he's throwing a party and God writes on the wall, I'll give glory to God and tell him what it means. Right? Sure. You got it, Mark. No problem. But this really does get down into the nitty-gritty of our lives. It gets down into the very basics. So let's first talk about relentless, the word relentless, because I think it's significant here. And there's a reason why we chose that word. Because relentless is not like a fun word. It's not a great word. In fact, it means this. Dictionary.com says it's to do, something to do something relentlessly is to do it in an unyieldingly severe, strict, or harsh way. To do it in an unyieldingly severe, strict, or harsh way. So when it comes to God and his glory, he seeks his glory in an unyieldingly severe way. 
He, he seeks it in a strict way. He seeks it in a harsh way. See, God relents with us because of his love and mercy through his son Jesus, but he does not relent when it comes to his glory. He relents with us in his love and mercy because of his son Jesus, but he does not relent when it comes to his glory. We need to be intentional and unyielding when it comes to giving God glory with every aspect of our lives. There's one person in my life who I see that does this better than anybody else. And he didn't kill me last night, so he probably won't kill me this morning. But that person is Brian Summers. Now, Brian is a guy that I get the honor to work with here at New Life. But every time I'm with Brian and he's around somebody, he's giving glory to God. If you drive the truck in here on the construction site to drop off gravel, you better bet that Brian was going to hop up next to where you were driving out and tell you about what God has done in his life. If you're someone who's come here to work or serve at the church, setting up chairs or working with his teams, you better believe Brian's going to tell you about what he's done in his life. He shares his testimony, not to glorify himself or see what I have done, but because he knows that God is the only way any of it was possible. He knows that God gets all the glory for what God has done in his life, and he doesn't try to take any for himself. In fact, so much so that while he was in Africa, he had the opportunity to share that testimony, and it's now being spread around Africa by other pastors because he sought not to glorify himself, with what's happened in his life, but because he wanted to make sure that God got the glory. And we each have the capability to be relentless in the same way of seeking to give God glory for the things that we've done, he's done in our lives. This church is relentless, obsessed, and constantly bent on doing what God wants us to do. We're constantly pursuing and praying for. And we don't always get it right. In fact, we oftentimes get it wrong. But we're constantly pursuing and always bent upon what it is that God would have us do so that we can be about building his kingdom. Because we're not just glory givers, we're also kingdom builders. And in life, we can fall into the trap of being a glory seeker, seeking glory for ourselves and building our own kingdom. When we were created to walk beside the church and be glory givers, giving glory to God and be kingdom builders, building God's kingdom and not our own. And each of us in our lives needs to be relentless about giving God glory and glorifying God with the things that he has done in our lives. And so to do that this week, I wanted to bring it down and make it really, really practical, something that we can do this week. So I have a prayer that I want us to wake up each morning this week and pray. And if you're going to go to the commitment to me today, like if you want to say it with me later, you're saying that I'm going to wake up each morning and the prayer's written on the bottom of your outline. So it's not hard. There's not even any fill in the blank. So you can't miss it. Right. And I just want you to pray this prayer with me each morning this week. And then we have one other thing. So the prayer is this, God, guide me today to further your kingdom and give me opportunities to bring you glory. It's not a lengthy prayer. It's not a wordy prayer. It's simple. God, guide me today to further your kingdom and give me opportunities to bring you glory. Then to find one person this week, one person, tell them about what God has done in your life and give God the glory for what he's done. I don't know who that person is. It might be a family member. You might have gone and wrote that person's name on the stage last week. And you thought, well, after I write this person's name on the stage, my job's done, right? I wrote their name on the stage so God can handle it now. Now, I'm encouraging you. If you wrote someone's name on the stage, it's to find and seek out an opportunity to share what God has done in your life. Guys, we live in a world where truth is relative. And there is nothing more powerful than experience. Do you realize that although truth being relative is a challenge for the church, it's a blessing for evangelism? Because if truth is relative, then nobody can deny your experience 
your experience, your story, and what has happened in your life is the most valuable and powerful tool that you have in this culture to glorify God and bring people to know him. And we need to learn and be willing to utilize it and glorify God through what he has done in our lives, in the way that we've experienced him, and the way that he has changed us. And if you're here today and God hasn't changed your life, today is a fantastic time to start. To say, God, I want you to come into my life. I want a new life. I want you to change who I am. I want to have these same experiences. I want to experience a God who loves me. I want to experience a God who's going to change my life. And he will. And he wants to. It's simple, not easy, but it's as simple as saying a prayer and just saying, God, come into my life, believing it in your heart that God died to save you from your sins. He's your Savior. And that he's your Lord. He's your owner, your master. And then walking and following in those footsteps and following Jesus from this point on. Guys, it's an incredible journey. An incredible journey. Not an easy one, but an incredible one. So as we close in prayer, if that's you, ask Jesus to come into your life today. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we've had. Father, I pray that you would just uh, show us your glory, that you would help us, Lord, to glorify you and everything that we say and we do. In your name, amen.